For the last few weeks, we've been in the midst of what Martin Luther termed the household code, a list of relationships that emerge out of the Apostle Paul's call to Christians to love one another and to be imitators of God as beloved children, to show his image to the world around us. And Paul notes the importance of relationships and who we partner with. In this letter, Ephesians, a letter that has been framed or that has been framing a definitive difference between two kingdoms, we see the kingdom of darkness led by God's adversary and the kingdom of light led by Christ. And to a large extent, what determines which kingdom we're in is our relationships and the way we view relationships. And so we have learned throughout Ephesians 4, 5, and where we are now, that we must be sure to reorient our relationships based on this truth. And so we see Paul say this in Ephesians 5, for example. And look at Ephesians 5, 6 through 10. Ephesians 5, 6 through 10. Just take this small section as an example of what I'm talking about in terms of reprioritizing relationships. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, sons of disobedience is a term for those that are in the kingdom of darkness. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you the saved person, were in darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul says, do not become partners with those who are of the kingdom of darkness. Instead, walk in the light and partner with those who are in the Lord. But that raises two questions, doesn't it? The first is the question, partner for what? What is he talking about, partner? We talk about business partners, or, or the word partners become very um, often used uh, for marriage in our culture, right? When we become Christians, who do we partner with first and foremost? What do you guys think? Who do we partner with first and foremost when we become Christians? Jesus. We partner with Christ. What do we partner with him for? For his mission, to bring about his redemptive plan. That's what being a Christian is, is to partner with Jesus, to give your allegiance to him and say, I'm partnering with you to accomplish your goals. What are his goals? Turn back to Ephesians 1 and look at Ephesians 1.10. You guys should remember this, and we've gone over it a few times since then. Talking about all that God has done through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of his spirit, all of it is for a plan, verse 10, for the fullness of time. To do what? To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so Ephesians 2 told us that we, those who follow Christ, were pulled out of the kingdom of darkness. Or maybe you are a person sitting here today who says, I'm not part of Christ. And so you are sitting in what the Bible terms the kingdom of darkness. But those of us that were pulled out of that kingdom of darkness, we were pulled out of it to partner with Christ and his people, to draw others into his body, the church. So that leads us to the second question in this idea of partnering with those in the kingdom of light. If we're only to partner with those in the light, does that mean we are to never have relationships with non-believers? In fact, should we go get our bunkers and our, you know, special clothes and, you know, talk in a special way and only talk with Christians and only meet with Christians? Is that what that's saying? Absolutely not. Let's answer from uh, what Jesus and Paul both said. First, uh, let's look at Jesus' high priestly prayer here. This is John 17. If you want to write this down, it's John 17, 14 through 19. I'll just read it. Jesus was praying uh, to the Father for his people, for those that were in the kingdom of light. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, right? He's looking at those two kingdoms, 
just as I am not of the world. Jesus said, I do not ask that you, the Father, take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Who's the evil one? Satan, the leader of the kingdom of darkness. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, meaning his people, the church, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Consecration and sanctification are two words that mean basically the same thing. It means set apart. It means set apart for a purpose. Well, here's what Paul says on this topic of of separation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, this is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. He says to the church at Corinth, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, because there's a lot of them. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. What's that mean? That person is a Christian. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, taking these together, we immediately start thinking, wow, I don't think I've ever seen that on a bumper sticker, right? (laughs) How are we as Christians obedient to these texts? I find what we as Christians do is we like to beat down and judge on people who say, yeah, I'm part of the kingdom of darkness. I have no problem with it. And we say, how dare you be part of the kingdom of darkness? And then in the church, we allow as much hypocrisy as we want. When in fact, what we should do is we should say, you're in the kingdom of darkness. You accept it. You want it. You're fine. Be as you are. You haven't chosen to walk with Christ. I have no judgment over you. It doesn't mean they're not walking in sin. It just means we have no part in that. What we do have a part in is judging one another. Really, Hans, you're supposed to judge me? Absolutely. We are supposed to look at one another's fruit and say, are you obediently walking with Christ? And if not, we don't beat up on one another. We don't condemn one another. What we do is we call one another back to Christ. You see, we should expect those who are not in the light to behave as those in the darkness. It shouldn't be a shock to us. We are, however, to be sanctified or set apart from them even while we remain in their midst. What are we set apart for? Dying and going to heaven? No. What we're set apart for is the mission of God, to unite all things in Christ based on his redemptive work on Calvary. Ephesians 1.10 tells us that Jesus paid the price of his own blood to ransom a people for his use. Just as he was sent into the world, he would then send those people into the world. For what purpose? To live a life however they wanted, pray a prayer, and then when they die, they get to go to heaven? No, so that they might be used for his mission, for his purposes. And what was his purpose? Well, when he died, he also resurrected three days later, proving he was victorious over the kingdom of darkness. And we then, his people, walk in that victory, knowing he is our king, seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne, having poured out his spirit into our hearts so that we might be regenerated to walk as he walked in this world. This is the gospel. If you're here today and that, that is news to you and you don't know that, I would love to talk to you after the service about what it is to walk as a Christian. 
If you're a person who's been in the church a long time and you're still trying to put together how this fits into you being saved, put that aside for a second and realize you were saved for a purpose. And that's what we're talking about here today. And so over the last two weeks, we have looked at reordering our relationships with all of this in our minds. To fulfill this mission, we have to think about and be purposeful in our relationships. We've spent a great deal of time on what it is to image Christ as husband and wife in the midst of a marriage relationship to draw people to Christ. If you haven't heard those, go back and listen to them. They're online from the last few weeks. At the same time, even with that mentality of marriage, we look at Ephesians 5, and one of the big questions that I've gotten before is, Hans, it talks about husbands and wives. What about those who are unmarried? And we have to admit that even though there is not a text here at the end of chapter 5, there is all of chapter 4 and chapter 5 that speaks to what it is to be married or unmarried, to be a Christian. And we have to admit that we as Christians sometimes take this section on marriage and show to the world that we have a very dysfunctional view of marriage. What is that dysfunctional view? I think that the church has a dysfunctional view of marriage because often we set marriage up as the highest good of a Christian without even knowing it. We set marriage up as the highest good, and what that then does is that turns a body that should be united, regardless of marital status, into divided body of those married and unmarried. And today I hope to kill that a bit. In my time in the church, I have heard some of the strangest views of marriage and singleness and dating. Let me give you a few examples of what I've heard from people. And these, these are quotes. I don't remember word for word, but they're close. I've heard this from a lot of Christians. Before I met my spouse, I just wasn't ready for marriage yet. God knew when I would be ready. First of all, I'm not ready for marriage, and I've been married for 16 years. <laughs> what this does is this gives a horrifically false notion that there are stages of spirituality and that you have to get to a certain level of holiness before God will, quote-unquote, bless you with marriage. Guys, that's just garbage. It's absolute garbage. Don't listen to people who say that. Another one. Just like God picked me out as special from all the people in the world, I know that God has someone special just for me. If I pray hard enough and look long enough, God will bring them to me. Okay? Thank you for that vomit noise. <laughs> Guys, this is the false view of soulmates that has bled into the church. One thing you have to know is that guys are guys and girls are girls. Men are men and women are women. Statistically speaking, my wife would be just as happy, if not more happy, with a number of men across the world. I'm just a dude, and she's just a woman. But what we've chosen to do is covenant together in lifelong faithfulness. And likewise, I'm sure there is statistically a number of women in the world that I would be just as happy, if not more happy with, because we would probably click better. Kelly and I have a ton of stuff that are different. That does not mean I love her any less, nor does it mean she loves me any less. We are not soulmates because there is no such thing. To have a soulmate view will lead you to have expectations that will ruin your marriage very quickly. The reason divorce is so prevalent in the church is because this is seeped in and people say, well, they're obviously not my soulmate because they belch and fart and smell. <laughs> Welcome to every husband on the planet. Here's another one. God is keeping marriage from you. This is what's often said to 
unmarried people. God is keeping marriage from you until you give up the thought. Then he will give you a spouse. I've also heard this about people who have a hard time having babies. Kelly and I heard this a ton. What this does is this makes God falsely into a capricious tyrant that's playing with our lives, and that's not who he is. Here's another one. This is said primarily, well, to female unmarried people. Why would you want to go to school and rack up debt when you'll just get married and have babies? This horrifically errant view seems to be saying that women cannot utilize their gifts unless they are wives and moms. Underlying all of these is the false assumption that marriage is God's ultimate plan for the Christian, that marriage is the place of Christian fulfillment. But today I want to take this topic of Christians that are married or unmarried, and I want to look at it biblically. And we start with what we've learned in Ephesians thus far, that a Christian is one who has their first and foremost identity, not as married or unmarried, but as a child of God and as a sibling of their brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. But one might protest and say, okay, Hans, why then is there this statement about wives and husbands in Ephesians 5 and nothing about being unmarried? Well, what I believe that Paul does here in a, in, in, and in a similar household code in Colossians is that he recognizes that all of chapters 4 and most of chapter 5 is about anyone regardless of their status. With each of the subsequent sections on marriage and then parenting, which we'll cover next week, and then masters and servants or contemporarily we'd say employees and employers, the people involved in those relationships take on an additional responsibility in imaging Christ in new ways. People who don't take those on are not less are not deficient because they haven't taken those on. So for inquiring minds about what Paul wants to say about marriage or singleness, what we have to do is we have to actually leave Ephesians. I know that's really sad for you guys. And we need to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Tyler read for us this morning. This is really one of the only places that we'll talk about this idea to a great extent throughout the Bible. And we're going to start looking at chapter 7. I'm going to cover most of it today as fast as I can. Um, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 9. So why don't you join me there? 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. Paul says to the church at Corinth, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. First thing we see is Paul stating this point. You can write this down. Marriage and singleness are both gifts from God. Marriage and singleness are both gifts from God. Let's quickly paint the background of this section so we can unpack this as well as possible. Most scholars believe that Paul had a number of letters of correspondence with the church at Corinth. It could very well be that what we know as 1st and 2nd Corinthians 
are actually 2nd and 4th Corinthians. And so in the midst of 1 Corinthians, it's at a place in the correspondence where they have sent a letter to Paul in response to one he sent them, calling them to a holy life to walk in obedience. And in their letter, they ask in a response a number of practical questions. They send him back questions and they say, Paul, we're Christians now, how do we do these things? And you can see this throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, such as in 7.1, where it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And he'll say in chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. In all of these, he is trying to answer their questions. Now, almost all scholars and commentators agree that this section, chapter 7, is one of the hardest of Paul's writings to decipher and one of the hardest sections of Scripture to comment on. Lucky me. Super excited. But what we have is we have a number of possibilities for what Paul is saying. Any commentary that you read on this, you will see a number of different options. And what I'm going to try and do is weed through it as best as possible, give you some of those options, but mostly what we're going to focus on today is what we do know from this section, not the theoretical things we don't know. The first general assumption that paints the background of 7.1 is that, get this, in Corinth, what was happening at the time, most likely, is that there were men who were desiring a zealous life of holiness, maybe even some of the elders. The problem was they were all upside down in what they believed that this would look like practically. Gnosticism, a version of Gnosticism, had crept into the church called asceticism. This is where you limit yourself from anything that is good in this life in the flesh. Food, drink, sex, right? Just stay away from it. No fun for you, right? That's what asceticism is. It's like the soup Nazi version of Christianity, right? And so these guys were denying themselves basic things. And so what they were saying to their wives was honey, we need to have a quote-unquote spiritual marriage, so no touchy. Perhaps even going so far as to say that no touching physically could be allowed. And this is what they meant when they wrote to Paul. You can see it there in the quote at the second half of verse 1. Paul, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's their statement. And so Paul quotes it. Now, this was potentially creating animosity between husbands and wives because maybe the wives had their needs for carnal intimacy not being met, and maybe it could be also that maybe they didn't have the highest libido, but it was making them wonder if their husbands were off cheating because they weren't being intimate with them. Now, this is an odd idea, this spiritual marriage idea. I've even heard it in my time in ministry from a young couple who was trying. It's in that YouTube video on the joke version of Christian dating. Uh, It is something that's been around the church for a long time. For example, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, there was a group of people called the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. I don't know if that fit on a business card well or not, but uh, not great for marketing. They believed that Christ was returning so soon that there was no need for procreation. And so they literally had spiritual marriages of husbands and wives who never touched each other, and they were nicknamed the Shaking Quakers or the shakers, because they would shake so much during their worship services because of their heavily ecstatic worship. Now, no shock that this group quickly died out because the only time they'd have kids come into their midst was when they would adopt orphans. And so today, there are two women that are living shakers. They're very old, and they live in Maine, and that's it. Well, Paul lovingly corrects their bad theology, and hopefully he does ours as well. First, Paul paints a picture of marriage as a gift in the midst of a sexually immoral world. Look at verse 2 again. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, he says each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
The ESV adds the words, the temptation to. The NASB, if you have that, it excludes the word sexual altogether and just says immorality. What the original Greek says is because of sexual immorality. Not temptation to, but just because of sexual immorality. And the word in the Greek is the word porneia. Does that sound like a word you guys know? It's where we get the word pornography, which is one of the dumbest words, by the way. The study of sexual immorality is what pornography means. It should be called the study of smut, right? But because of porneia, because of sexual immorality, you should have marriage. Now, throughout Paul's letters, you will see sexual immorality at the top of most lists of the fruit or works of the flesh. It's also at the top of the list of what activities will exclude you from the kingdom of heaven, which is why we have to take it so seriously. It is one of Satan's primary tools of destruction. Church, how many pastors have you heard of that have gotten taken down by Satan because of sexual immorality? And our country and our culture is saturated with sexual immorality. It has gotten so bad, we don't even notice it in the church any longer. The statistics on pornography inside and outside the church are horrific. If you would like a packet, I can send you a packet that is thick with statistics on pornography and the wreckage it's causing in the church. Here's what's scary. If you look at them, really there is one difference and one difference only between those in the church and those outside. The difference is is that there is less pornographic interaction initiated on Sunday afternoons. That is the only main difference. And so Paul states that marriage is a gift to believers in this kind of a world with this kind of sexual immorality because a husband and wife can meet one another's sexual needs and help their spouse stay away from sexual immorality. Now, let me be very, very clear here. Don't mishear me. A husband or wife's active sexual immorality can never, ever be blamed on their spouse's lack of sexual interaction. Do you hear me there? Don't ever blame your spouse for not fulfilling your needs enough as the reason why you act in sexual immorality. That is abuse. It is the responsibility of the person in sin to deal with it and come to the elders or their community group leaders and deal with these issues. As a church, we provide Covenant Eyes accounts to you free of charge, and we help you walk through this if you need it. Now, at the same time, Paul does paint a picture of mutual selflessness in the area of sexuality and the need to protect one another from sexual temptation. When I do premarital coaching, there are three big areas I warn about in terms of marital conflict. They are the trifecta that destroy marriages. First, finances. Second, interaction with in-laws and codependence in the midst. And third, sexual issues. Now, why are sexual issues such a big deal in marriage? What I've found in, in all the marriage counseling I've done is that when sex is going pretty well, it's actually a kind of a tiny deal. It's not that big of an issue. But when sexual uh, intimacy is not going well, it is the biggest issue. Why is it such a problem? Well, I believe that it's because the state of your sexual union in your marriage points to the underlying intimacy in the marriage relationship. And let me be clear, sexual intimacy in marriages is kind of like fingerprints or snowflakes. It's different for every marriage, right? And so there are averages out there about quantity and quality and that kind of thing, but for the most part, it's different among marriages. But what your sexual union does state, regardless of how often it is, 
but just how much joy both of you get in it is it states uh, something about the underlying intimacy of your marriage. I use this graphic in the midst of marriage counseling to help describe this. There are various levels of intimacy that you can have with any human being. You can go to your barista at the coffee shop and you can have conversational intimacy with them at a certain level. If you go there often and you get to know them and they get to know you, then you've ascended to a place of mental intimacy. You know something about them. Well, let's say you get to know that they have a kiddo and you find out that kiddo is sick and so the next time you go into the coffee shop, you share emotional intimacy with them and say, I'm so sorry that your child is sick. You've ascended from conversational to mental to emotional. And maybe one day they say, you know, I I really appreciate your uh, empathy. Can I go to church with you? And so they come to church with you and you get to hug them in the midst of the church and you pray with them and sing with them. Now, all of a sudden, you're at spiritual and and you're having physical non-sexual intimacy with them, okay? With each level of intimacy, uh, the amount of intimacy we can give people grows smaller, okay? Facebook has lied to us to say that we can have 500 friends all at the same level. It's just garbage. You can't. Uh, Jesus himself is the most perfect man, and he had three men that were super close to him, 12 that were kind of close, and then from there, it kind of went on out. If that's all Jesus can have, then you with your 500 close intimate Facebook friends are probably lying to yourself. And so as each level goes up, it has to get smaller and smaller. Question, according to what Paul just said, how many people are involved in that sexual pinnacle there? It should be just one person with you, right? It should just be one person. You can't have sexual intimacy with everyone. Now, obviously, every metaphor breaks down, but this is a really great understanding. Now, what uh, society has done is they've said, well, I want the conversational, the mental, the emotional, the physical, non-sexual, and the spiritual. I really want those, but those are super hard because that calls for transparency, and that calls for vulnerability, and that calls for time and energy. So why don't I just flip the whole thing on its head, and we'll just go through the sexual route to try and gain all the rest of the intimacy as fast as possible. Guys, if you don't know it, polyamory is a massively growing thing in the Northwest and down in San Francisco. There are entire communities of polyamorous people getting together to grow their communities. Really what they're doing is they're, rather than using the spirit to join them together, they're trying to create the Christian community through sex. That's what it is. And so the world flips it on its head. And Paul is saying in a world like that, marriage is a blessing. Marriage is a blessing. In Paul's world, sexual union was to be saved for one person and one person alone. Guys, it's not the greatest form of intimacy. And don't think it's the only form of intimacy. But it is the portion of intimacy that speaks to the health of a marriage. If you don't have the rest of these pieces of intimacy and you are having good sex, then there's probably something a little bit broken in your view of sexuality. If you're having all the rest of these pieces of intimacy and no sex and you're married then there's probably something broken as well. Spouses, I want you to start thinking about your sexuality, not from the standpoint of your sex drive or your desire, but from the standpoint of your spouses. Are you using sexuality just for your own needs and desires or for your spouse? Sexuality is an area in which you can give yourself selflessly for the care and protection of your spouse. I didn't say that, guys. Paul just did. Verses 1 through 9. Look at it again. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer 
But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In this Me Too age where there is rightfully a correction against sexual abuse, we also have to realize that we aren't necessarily in marriage supposed to have control of our own body. We're supposed to give it to our spouse. We're supposed to lay it down and surrender it to our spouse. Now, guys, I know in this church there are probably a million different stories, and often our sexual dysfunction comes not from our marriage but from the baggage behind it. And I want to just suggest to you that if there are concerns in your relationship today, don't think things like, well, Hans is too young, he doesn't understand, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Guys, uh, it's part of my job, unfortunately, to talk about marriage a lot. And in marriage, there's a lot of talk about sex. And so I would just say to you, seek help. If it's broken in your marriage, seek help. If you want to come and talk with me and my wife, we'd be happy to do that. If you want to talk about it confidentially and have me send you off to some other experts in the field, I'd be happy to do that as well. Whether it's a medical issue, a psychological issue, an emotional issue, or a spiritual issue, I want to get you help because marriage is for protection in this area. So we know that from Ephesians and Colossians and Malachi, among others, that marriage is a gift in other ways too. Don't walk out of here thinking that Hans is sex crazy and that that's the only thing that he's thinking of. I will tell you that my wife is very beautiful and I think about it a lot with her and that's okay. Husbands, you should with your wives too. That's a good thing. We got to get rid of this stupid idea in the church that we tell our kids, sex is gross, save it for the one you love. That's garbage. We have to think about it rightfully and maturely and understand it, okay? Marriage is a blessing in other ways like it provides for kids. It helps us to be fruitful and multiply and obey that command. It provides godly offspring if we use our marriage as an environment of discipleship. But Paul's point here today is, if not for sexual interaction, why would you have gotten married in the first place? That's his point. Let me explain what I mean. Let's look at that intimacy pyramid again. Church, please tell me how many of these levels of intimacy you should be able to reach with either brothers or sisters in the body. How many of them? Five. Which one should you not be entering into with anyone other than your spouse? Absolutely. And so you got to realize, guys, that all of these are things that we should have in the body. When I took my first marriage counseling class, the professor asked a funny question to start the class. He said, how many of you would have gotten married if sexual union was not part of marriage? Now, all the students, I was one of the last, all the students went around and they answered and they said they absolutely would because God brought me this person and they're my soulmate. Now, I know I sound sarcastic because I am being sarcastic. (laughs) It got to me and I said, no, I wouldn't have gotten married if there weren't sex. And you should have seen the collective jaw drop from all these young pups who had just gotten married. One of them looks at the professor and they say, Professor, what about you? And he goes, I agree with Hans. Now, why did we say this? Well, because, guys, everything I do with my wife, Kelly, outside of sex, I can be doing with my brothers in Christ or my sisters in Christ. Well, Hans, what about emotional affairs? Well, we need to be careful of those, and we need to put boundaries in place and be very open about that. There are emotional levels I will not get to with any other woman in the church that I will with my wife. But guys, we have to get out of this idea because what it's creating for folks who are unmarried as they grow up in the church is this idea that if I want to have deep, intimate relationship, I have to hurry up and get married. 
And what we need to tell them is, no, 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 no. Practice deep, intimate relationship with your brothers and sisters. And guess what that will do if you do get married? It will make your marriage exquisite because you will know how to deal with different personality styles and different issues. My point is this. We have gotten so far afield from the deep level of intimacies that we should have in the church. Brothers and sisters, rather than invest in deep, intimate relationships within the family of Christ, we've put all of our eggs in the basket of marriage, and that is a weight that no one human can take on. That is why so many people are frustrated with their spouses. They've placed all their relational needs on their spouse rather than pursuing strong friendships within the body of Christ. Some of the ladies in this room, I am so thankful for you because you take the pressure off of me. You help my wife in deep, intimate, emotional, and mental ways that I just can't because I'm a blockheaded dude. Thank you for that. We have to spread that intimacy. If you are an unmarried person, ask yourself if you need to invest more deeply in your relationships within the body rather than putting all your desires on a potential spouse. We need to invest deeply in relationships with those in the body of our same gender. And then for relationships with the opposite gender, we have to stop being afraid of one another. We're not at the wailing wall where we have to be separated according to men and women. What we do need to do is, rather than cutting off people of the opposite sex for fear of potential emotional affairs, we need to get our stuff together and invite accountability into those relationships. Kelly knows if I'm meeting with other women in the church. There are protective measures in my office. I have cameras in my office. I have all sorts of things around me. The leaders of the church ask me. We have to stop being afraid of one another as if, guys, as if women are just walking around waiting to make us commit adultery. Sometimes the church acts that way, and we need to stop that. And if God does have marriage for you unmarried people, then practicing deep relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ will only make your future marriage better. Well, but Paul doesn't say that just marriage is a gift. He says that singleness is a gift as well. Look again at verses 6 through 9 there. Paul says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Notice, though, that this is not a gift of protection from sexual immorality like marriage was. This is a concession for Paul, not a command. He's not commanding people to get married. He would prefer that those who can maintain sexual purity without marriage stay as he is, unmarried. Now, we don't know if Paul was unmarried his whole life. F.F. Bruce, one of the foremost theologians of the 20th century, among others, he theorized that Paul, being part of the Sanhedrin and considered a rabbi, would have needed to be married but we don't know for sure. And if that was the case, his wife may have left him when he converted to Christianity. She may have died. We don't know. But the question is, is why is singleness a gift? Because according to most of the church, it's absolutely not. And that's why folks who are unmarried often feel a bit ashamed about their singleness. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit more deeply here in a second, but what this uh, means in short is because Paul believes that it's a gift because your devotion to Christ can be fully for his mission. You don't have to have divided purpose or divided focus. Now, what this does not mean, unmarried folks, is that you should go be a monk or a nun or go into the desert to pursue Jesus. 
And it doesn't even mean go be a missionary. I think often that's what's said in the church. Well, you're unmarried, so you're supposed to be a missionary. Go, right? What it means is that you can be devoted to Christ and his people right in the middle of a local body of believers. Your time, your talents, and treasure will not be divided, but purposefully given towards his body. Can I just say to many of you who are unmarried in this room, you are amazing servants. The things that you do for this body and care for those who have divided interests and have divided purpose is amazing. I am so thankful for both the married and the unmarried people in this room because of how you serve one another. Unfortunately, like I said, local church bodies often make it extremely uncomfortable for unmarried people to remain that way. But we'll discuss that more in a minute. So the question for any person then, and I know this is a bit uncomfortable, is do you burn with sexual passion? Guys, when I met Kelly, I knew two things. One, I wanted to marry that girl. And two, I was not called to be single. That's what I knew. Do you burn with passion? If you do, then you probably should look toward marriage. If it is not a constant battle or it's merely an annoyance, then perhaps you've been given the gift of being unmarried. Maybe it's, it's something that's there, but it's not that big of a deal. Paul actually calls this a gift. Isn't it interesting that we rarely hear of singleness spoken of as a spiritual gift, as a charisma? You never ever see conferences where people say, come utilize your gifts. One of them that we're going to talk about is singleness, right? But that's what Paul is saying. He uses the word charisma, gift, talking about singleness. It's a gift because you can focus on the eternal and not get hung up in the temporal. And this is a gift because Paul points out that, here's the second thing, The things of this earth will pass away, including marriage. Let's take a look and skip forward a bit. Uh, Tyler read 17 through 24. Let's look at verses 25 through 31. And I'm going to be skipping around a bit, but I'll try and connect the dots for you. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Can I get an amen from all those married? And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now again, some background is needed. The word betrothed is a tough one to translate. Many of you are probably looking at your, your uh, translations going, that's not what mine says. The word in the Greek is parthenos. It means virgin, maiden, or betrothed. In that culture, these were very much the same. Now he's also going to be speaking to widows and unmarried men, but this ambiguity on this word parthenos gives us multiple interpretations. Here's one. Paul may be speaking generally to the people of Corinth that are unmarried about if they should marry or not. But that becomes awkward in verses 7, 36 through 37. Let's go ahead and look there. 36 through 37. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. 
Now, why this becomes really odd is why would Paul say in verses uh, 1 through 9 uh, that you need to have, um, give yourself in carnal knowledge to one another, but here recommend a spiritual, quote-unquote, marriage where they don't have any carnal interaction? This doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, the second option is that Paul is speaking to the unmarried men and widows of Corinth, but when, when it comes to this word parthenos, the young women who have not married, what he's doing here in verses 36 and 37 is addressing their fathers because they were the protector over their young daughters. So in the NASB, it quotes it this way, very woodenly based on the original translation. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. In other words, he says, honey, uh, I think it's a good thing for you to serve Jesus and you shouldn't get married. Now, in our culture, we push back on that big time. Why would a father ever say that to his daughter? But this seems the more likely interpretation. We don't know for sure. One of the other things that we need to recognize is that Paul is speaking out of his own wisdom and logic here. And this gives us something very important to understand. Look at verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. And look at verse 40, all the way at the end of the chapter. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Both of these statements point out that Paul never received direct revelation on whether God prefers someone to be married or not. Let me say that again. Both of these point out that Paul never received direct revelation about whether God prefers someone to be married or not. So church, why then is it such a massive question for so many singles in our midst? God, do you want me to be married? Do you not want me to be married? It's as if it's the utmost importance to God. Could it be that God does not have a preference whether you are married or not, as long as you are obedient in either circumstance? Let me say that again. Could it be that God does not have a preference whether you are married or not, as long as you are obedient in either circumstance? This is what it sounded like in the section Tyler read this morning. 719, that verse, it says, Live as you are called because nothing, and this is my interpretation of it, live as you are called because nothing, even circumcision or non-circumcision, matters but only keeping the commandments of God. So marriage is not an eternal concern. It only becomes one in so much as it helps you walk in obedience, i.e. it protects you from sexual immorality and allows you to walk towards Christ. Third, I want you to understand Paul's motivation in writing what he does. We need to, need to figure out what he's saying here when he says this present distress in verse 26 or this appointed time in verse 29. This is what makes this section so confusing. You're probably going to need to go back and re-listen to this teaching multiple times because it took me multiple times to go through chapter 7 in studying. Unfortunately, no one knows what Paul means here. Some believe it was a current trial or tribulation in Corinth at the time of the writing. Others believe that Paul was writing with the belief that Jesus was coming back immediately and this was what he was referring to. We don't know. What we do know is that in either case, Paul wants the readers to be aware of the transitory nature of this life. Look at verse 31 with me. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Church Paul's point is that when we put so much emphasis on our earthly jobs, our marriages, our earthly situations, we miss out on recognizing that in any of those situations, our highest purpose and mission is to partner with Christ 
in obediently following his rule of righteousness and justice and imaging his nature to the world and proclaiming the gospel to them that they are called to join with us in pursuing Christ. Let's look at Jesus' teaching on the transitory nature of marriage. Go with me to Matthew 22. Turn there with me. Matthew 22, verse 23. Give me an amen if you're there. Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, they're trying to make fun of him here, trap him. Teacher, Moses said, said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. First of all, after about the fourth guy, don't you think the brothers would be like, no thanks, I'm good, right? (laughs) Seems like this is a death sentence, all right? After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, they asked, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now guys, this is Mormon theology. This is, uh, I get married, and so I have that marriage the rest of eternity. But look at what Jesus answers. Look at what the truth is. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teachings. In other words, guys, don't think about life, about life here, and then you die, and then something new starts. As Christians, life begins right now. If you are a Christian, you are alive. Your life right now continues. Now, what immediately happens is people who love their spouse dearly go, I'm not going to be married to them anymore. Well, guys, you're going to have something better. You're going to have something far greater. And all the weirdness and gender weird roles will go away. And all of a sudden, when we stand before the Lord in his kingdom, we will be brothers and sisters in Christ. And there will be nothing but unity, no division, no harm, no hurt. Don't you want that with your spouse? I do. Even if that means sexual intimacy goes away, I'm just one with her. That's the whole point of having sex with our spouses is to be one with them. This is a good thing. We won't need procreation or protection from sexual immorality. We don't know how this will happen, but all of the weirdness will go away. So if marriage is a gift but is passing away, if marriage is a gift but it's passing away, church, what are we to focus on within marriage? There are entire Christian conferences and books that make billions telling you how to keep the romance alive in your Christian marriage. Is that what the Bible points your eyes to? So many are told to focus on keeping the spark alive, have date nights all the time, keep wooing each other. And guys, there's some truth in this, but I do want to sound a bit sarcastic because that's not what the Bible directs your eyes to. The Bible says that we are to love and be selfless in the midst of marriage. What Paul would have us to understand is that marriage is a wonderful gift in which there should be selfless love, but that's not a love that's based on feeling or romance. Anyone who's married more than a few years knows that romantic love goes away, and that's okay. Covenantal love is what stands firm. Dear church, marriage is fleeting if it does not ultimately point to Christ and help us walk in obedience. 
Imagine if you pour the next 60 years of your life, if you're a young married couple, into a romantic marriage and you stand before the Lord one day and you watch that romance go poof and realize you just spent 60 years in vain. But if you stand in covenantal love and pursuing your spouse, even when they're hard to love, and doing the hard things, you will stand before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because you imaged the heart of Christ. And so Paul's main point that we should take to heart this morning is this. Number three, last point. Regardless of marital status, Christ desires your undivided devotion. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit. He's giving great compassion here. Not to lay any restraint upon you. In other words, he's not saying, go be single because that's better. He's saying, realize what you're taking on if you get married. He says, I don't want to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order, and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What is Paul's main goal? To secure our undivided devotion to the Lord. If you are married, Paul knows how this goes, doesn't he? This is why many think that he was married. The cares of the world, innately good things like date nights and Little League, don't think those are bad. They're innately good. Well, they're innately not good or bad. And things like school plays, right? They all choke out the fruit of making disciples and imaging Christ with your life. You hit a certain point in midlife and you go, wow, I haven't thought about Christ at all today because I've been so busy being soccer mom or dad. In other words, you will be anxious about time with the kids, time with your spouse. Kelly and I have talked about this. She bears a constant burden that she expresses to me very lovingly where she says, sometimes, honey, I feel like the kids and I are a burden, And I say, of course not, honey. Why why would that be? And she says, well, because you have to divide your time. It's a truth. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means I can give less of myself to you and to ministry. If I'm doing a good job, I have to divide my time because I love my family and I care for them. But realize this. How do you not be anxious about dividing your time? Well, it depends on who you marry. So here's the amazing thing about my wife is She understands our ministry. She understands that at the end of days, we will stand before the Lord, not only for this church, but for our family and for all the people we disciple, and we both want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so she has partnered with me, and I've partnered with her to pursue Christ. When we got married and started to follow the Lord, we focused on what what it was together to pursue Christ and serve in the same mission serving Christ with our whole life. And so whether we're parenting, whether we're doing social calls, whether we're doing ministry, it's all for the glory of God to the best of our ability. Look at what Paul says in 739. Skip ahead there to 739. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Wait, wait, she's not free to marry a non-believer? No, why? Because Paul's whole point in this chapter is, is if you marry a non-believer, you're going to have even more divided interest. You think you're on mission for Jesus? Just wait, your spouse will drag you away from that. 
This is why it's so important to marry a believer, and not just one in name only, but one in activity. If you're zealous for church and they're apathetic about church, what do you think will happen to your walk? You will become apathetic. If you're zealous for serving and going on missions trips, and they like to shop at Gap more often than go to missions trips, you're probably not going to go on missions trips. Paul is saying, make sure you're devoted to the same Lord. So we must serve Jesus in the midst of our marriages and not lift marriage above being unmarried as a higher status in which we can serve Jesus. Now, to those of you that are unmarried, the leadership of this church want you to serve Jesus with your gifts now and be fulfilled now. If marriage comes along, great. But if not, know that you are part of the most important family, the family of Christ. If you're single in this church, don't think I have to wait to have a family to be part of a family. You're part of a family right now. And married folks, the way we can show this is by having those that are unmarried as part of our families, regularly opening our homes up to them to just live life with us. I'm going to have a singles dinner at my house. Come on, singles. And that doesn't divide. Are you kidding me? Of course it does. Just have them to your house. Let them be a, another daughter or another son. Have them come in the informal, miraculously mundane parts of life. Take them to the grocery store with you. Just let them live with you. We must stop acting towards the unmarried in the church as if something is broken when they do not marry. We do harm because they may have a great ministry and be called to being single. And if they are not, the last thing they want to hear from any one of us who's married is cliches about getting married or questions about when you're getting married. If an unmarried person lets you know that they desire to marry, then pray that the Lord would bring someone into their lives that will pursue Jesus with them. And be honest with them if they're dating a schmuck, someone that you feel and fear will draw them away from Christ because they need that information too. But don't assume that God desires for a person to be married just because you are. Empower the unmarried brothers and sisters in the church to use their gifts now. For those of you that are unmarried, I want to give a few more practical items of encouragement to finish this morning. First, I want to say to you the same thing I would say to anyone in this body, those of you that are unmarried. I would say this to the married and the unmarried. Focus your eyes and devotion upon Christ. Partner with those around you in this body to serve Christ and serve in this body and the community that surrounds us. And do this with zeal and energy. If you feel like you burn with sexual passion, then begin praying for God to bring someone into your path. But don't stray from serving Christ in order to find them. Practice sexual purity and self-control now because it will serve you well in marriage. Because guess what? Even in marriage, self-control is still needed massively. If you want to pursue finding a spouse using social media or the internet, go for it. I understand the desire there, but just be extremely careful. Work within the tension of desiring a spouse, but also desiring a spouse that will keep you as devoted as possible to Christ over and above themselves. When you meet them, look at their relationships with family and friends and their church body. Do they have believing family who have properly discipled them in the ways of the Lord? Do they surround themselves with believing friends who partner with them in pursuing Christ and kingdom work? Do they love their church body and serve it well? As we learned last week, how they treat their church body is often how they will end up treating their spouse. And if you meet someone, and this would be my preference as your pastor, single folks, 
that the people you meet and desire to marry, that they love their church body as much as you do yours. That means that they're walking solidly with Jesus. Then pray about where you will have the most impact in regards to ministry and mission. Convince them to come here and help us in our mission to partner with Christ or go with them and delve deeply into their church. We'll pray for you and send you out. Don't make the mistake so many people have made of settling for someone with potential. Someone, well, they're nice. Or someone who is a Christian in name only because they went on Christian Mingle or some other website. They need to live it in their lives. Otherwise, they will drag you away from Jesus. For those of you who feel as though you may be one gifted with the gift of strength against sexual immorality, realize that you do not need a spouse in order to give you an identity or clearly state that you are of value. Pour into your brothers and sisters in Christ. Find ways to use your talents to the glory of God. Pursue training and education that will help you and empower you to serve Jesus to a greater and greater degree within his body. And if the Lord should bring someone along in that process to partner with you as you move ahead, awesome. And if not, Paul would tell you, it's a good thing. Serve Jesus. For any of us, we must examine our lives to see if we are those who have allowed our devotion to become divided. Are we those trees, married or unmarried, that have been choked out by the cares of this world? Have our spouses become enemies or idols rather than partners with whom we are working to serve Christ? Have our children become masters and idols rather than the next generation of disciples that we need to love and train in the ways of Christ? Has our hope of a spouse become this dream that draws our mind away from the true hope, Jesus himself? Brothers and sisters of mission, regardless of your marital status, serve Jesus. We must purpose to stop letting our eyes and hearts and minds wander to issues of this world, whether wealth or success or sex or marriage or politics or parenting or materialism or vacations or comfort or earthly hopes and dreams. Serve Jesus, whether in the miraculous or in the miraculously mundane. Serve Jesus. For all of us this morning, let's be honest with ourselves and ask the Lord to reveal to us what things we have allowed to divide our devotion. And let's take time at the communion table to lay those things down at the feet of Jesus in lament and sacrifice. And let's cast our eyes back on the one that deserves our undivided devotion, the one who died for us, the one who resurrected in victory, the one who ascended and sits as the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is coming to judge the living and the dead. And let's let our lives live out their full potential of being his servants.